Hello, and welcome to The World Ahead on Economist Radio. I'm Tom Standage, Deputy Editor at The Economist, and in this future-gazing podcast series, we consider speculative scenarios and provocative prophecies to give us a different perspective on the present and help us better prepare for what might come next. In this episode, we'll be asking, is there a global revolution underway in attitudes towards cannabis? You know, when grandma's smoking pot, it is much more acceptable. And are we worrying about the wrong kind of robot dystopia? Countries that don't invest in new technology and automation are going to look at countries that have done that and think, oh, we should have done that 20 years ago, but it'll be 20 years too late. But first, to Egypt. That's the rare sound of protests in Cairo, where people recently took to the streets to accuse President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi of corruption. Public gatherings of more than 10 people are not allowed in Egypt, and hundreds of people have subsequently been arrested. Mr Sisi came to power in 2014 after a military coup in which he deposed the country's first democratically elected leader. But he's seen by many world leaders as better than the alternative. So what would happen if Mr Sisi's government were to collapse? To discuss this, I'm joined by The Economist's foreign editor, Robert Guest. Welcome, Robert. Thank you. Today, when people think about instability in the Middle East, they're likely to be thinking about Saudi Arabia, Yemen, the aftermath of the war in Syria, the end game there. Why should we be thinking about Egypt and possible instability there? Some people might think it offensive even to ask the question, what would happen if Egypt collapsed? But one person who asks this question all the time is the president of Egypt himself, Abdel Fattah al-Sisi. He said, and this is a quote from 2015, if Egypt collapsed, millions of Islamic State members would storm the world. Now, the reason he says things like this is because he wants all the foreign powers who care about stability in the Middle East to give him billions and billions of dollars and support him so that Egypt doesn't collapse. Is that working then? It works surprisingly well. The uh, oil-rich Gulf monarchies give him huge amounts of money because they're terrified that if he falls, the Muslim Brotherhood, whom they regard as terrorists, will take over. And indeed, that's not at all unlikely. Last time, the only time there was a fair election in Egypt, the Muslim Brotherhood won. They were then overthrown in a coup led by Mr. al-Sisi. He also gets help from America. Many of people in the uh, Trump administration consider the Muslim Brotherhood to be a terrorist organization and want to keep it out of power. And he gets a blind eye turned to his many human rights abuses, to the many people tortured in his police cells from Europe, because the Europeans don't want anything that might spark a surge of refugees across the Mediterranean. So they want to keep things the way it is. But it all sounds like a brilliant ruse, but how unstable is Egypt, in fact? It's brittle. On the surface, it may seem stable, but underneath, discontent is immense. Start with the very high levels of unemployment, particularly the young graduates, about a third of them don't have jobs. And in any country, the group who are most likely to foment revolution are bright young people who are very frustrated. It's run by a dictator, a dictator who this year pushed through an unfair referendum, which would allow him to rule until 2030. He wants to remain in the job forever. So you have a strong man with messianic pretensions who wants to rule forever. That's not a recipe for stability. And then you have the most popular political party in the country, the Muslim Brotherhood, who are absolutely furious that they were thrown out of power at gunpoint. Okay, so that's the internal situation. And what about relations with its neighbours and external forces? Here, there is 
one really big possible source of instability, and that's water. Egypt is mostly desert. It relies for 90% of its water on the River Nile, and it's the downstream part. So control of the source of the Nile lies with other countries. And Ethiopia is planning to build a very big dam on the Nile in order to generate electricity and help its people to lift themselves out of poverty. Sudan, also upstream from Egypt, wants to start an agricultural revolution and divert lots of water for farming. Some Egyptian military officers have openly said that Egypt might go to war, might actually blow up the dam in order to prevent the other countries from taking more water than they currently do. I don't think that's likely, but several experts think it's possible that the countries could blunder into a conflict, particularly when one of them is led by such a headstrong leader as Mr. al-Sisi. And you also have Islamic State-affiliated terrorists occupying a significant portion of the country up in Sinai, uh, killing Christians, burning churches, and murdering Muslims who they don't think are Muslim enough, like Sufis. Okay, so we've got both internal and external sources of potential instability. What might happen then if Egypt collapses? First off, you'd see waves of refugees that would make the numbers coming out of Syria seem really small because Egypt's population is five times what Syria's was before the civil war began there. And a few of them, I suppose, might head into the empty desert of Libya. Some of them would try to make it to the oil-rich Gulf states, but most of them would try to get to Europe. And that would be a huge source of difficulty because the Europeans would not want them to come. You would see Italy and France completely close their borders. You'd see the Coast Guards trying to repel them and push them back to anywhere, really. It would probably power electoral victories by populists in places where they haven't yet taken over. I mean, you know, we think of France as being a liberal and outward-looking place because the last election was won by a president who believes in those values. But remember that the populists and the nativists have come second in presidential elections twice in the past, and they could win next time, particularly like this. Italy, same thing. Salvini could be prime minister if this happened. Meanwhile, in Egypt, if there was no one in charge, you would see terrorists make it a base. Islamic State would take over chunks of the country. Libyan rebels would use the border areas as bases from which to launch raids into their own countries. And you'd probably have foreign military intervention. If the Suez Canal was no longer under the control of the Egyptian government. Well, that's the, the narrow waterway through which most American naval power passes from the, the Mediterranean to points east. It is very likely that the Americans would step in and take over the canal zone. They'd do it probably as part of a coalition with a token force of Saudis and Emiratis and, and other Gulf Arabs involved in it. I think Britain and France probably wouldn't get involved because the last time they did try to take over the Suez Canal in the 1950s, it ended in national humiliation. But it's a very likely flashpoint. So if this were to happen, it would essentially be like the crisis we've seen in Syria, but potentially on a much larger scale. So what can be done internally and externally to make this much less likely? One practical thing they can do is to handle water better. Right now, the Egyptian government prices water absurdly cheaply, which encourages everyone to waste it. Farmers lavish it on crops they shouldn't be growing at all. You can walk through Cairo and you see shopkeepers 
hosing down the pavements outside their shops every time they get dusty, which given they're in a desert is all the time. So you could price water properly and then it would be easier for the countries on the Nile to share it out without coming to blows. So that would reduce tensions with the with the neighbours, as it were. But what about internally? I mean, Sisi wants to stay there forever. So um, what can anyone, moderates within Egypt, people outside, do to try and reduce the likelihood of a collapse? Ultimately, they are going to need a government that represents the will of the people. At the moment, they're pursuing the authoritarian argument that the way you have stability is to have a strong man at the top who shoots or imprisons people who try to destabilize things. That's not a recipe for long-term security. You ultimately need to have the kind of elections where it's not rigged and the will of the people is actually preserved. And you need to do it under a constitution that constrains the victors from riding roughshod over everyone else, which is, alas, what the Muslim Brotherhood did when they were last in charge. What does all this mean for the Western powers that are essentially propping up the Egyptian regime at the moment? What you're seeing at the moment is that external powers, and it's not just the West, it's the Gulf states as well, are buying short-term stability by keeping Sisi in power. But in the long run, Egypt cannot be secure unless it has a more representative form of government. And at the moment, that doesn't look very likely. Robert Guest, thanks very much. Thanks, Tom. Next, around the world, more and more countries are allowing the medical use of cannabis. So how is that changing attitudes to the drug more generally? To discuss this, I'm joined by Natasha Loder, health policy editor at The Economist, who wrote about this recently. Natasha, welcome to The World Ahead. Hello. So you recently wrote a big piece about what you called a cannabis revolution. So what were you referring to there? Well, I was talking about the revolution in uh, medical use of cannabis, which has sort of taken off like wildfire across the world. You can find medical cannabis use across North America, many of the states in America. You can find it in Australia. You can find it now, of course, in Britain, France, Germany, and even in South America. So it's almost hard to count the number of countries that allow medical cannabis. It's just moving so quickly. So that's what's happening. Right. But your point is that as the laws are relaxed to allow the medical use of cannabis, that's sort of opening the door to relaxation of restrictions on cannabis in other areas too. So where are we seeing that? Yes, that's a sort of secondary part of this pattern. If you look back over the decades and you look at places that have legalised medical cannabis, you do see this quite strong pattern that at some point uh, later down the line, they then legalise for recreational use. It looks like that's what's going to happen in Mexico, which allows medical use and is now talking about full legalisation. And it also could happen in New Zealand, which is about to vote on it. And many people are saying that, you know, the sort of more conservative European countries, which haven't really liberalised cannabis, like Britain and France and Germany, they're all allowing medical cannabis now or in the process of doing so. And many people feel that this will, in fact, open the door to full legalisation for all the reasons that we could discuss. So when a country or state legalises medical use of cannabis, what exactly do they legalise? What countries are mostly doing is they are allowing the medical use of a form of cannabis sativa that has tetrahydrocannabinol in it. In terms of the form of medical cannabis that's allowed, that also can be uh, extremely variable. Mostly people, um, uh, you know, are getting access to some form of the herb. Maybe they're getting an oil 
oil, which is a sort of extract of cannabis. But it's not a regulated product that they're getting. And this is kind of where medical cannabis is in a really sort of grey legal area in the sense that people are wanting medical cannabis, but there are very few actual approved drugs on the market. There are a few. And these approved drugs have obviously been through clinical trials, ones for spasticity related to MS, another one's for epilepsy. These can be treated just like traditional drugs and you can be prescribed them in in the normal way. So when people say medical cannabis, you need to kind of put air quotes around it, okay, because it's not what you and I would consider a medicine um, in terms of, you know, something that is safe and approved and regulated. So it's this grey area that leads naturally from the legalisation of medical cannabis to the sort of general loosening of restrictions. Well, you could say that. I mean, I suppose in the piece what I'm arguing is that once you have a kind of regulatory process there for dispensing cannabis, that it becomes easier to broaden it in the sense that you have to do quite a lot of regulatory work to make sure you're supplying this medical population. And once you've done that, then it's a much smaller step to allow full legalisation. But I mean, I also think there's a sort of um, sort of cultural shift that's allowed by medical cannabis. And this is one of the things that I've said in the piece is that a lot of people are using cannabis to relieve pain, you know, minor pain, chronic pain. In fact, the sort of pain that people were taking opioids for and probably shouldn't have been, in fact, almost certainly shouldn't have been. And one group of patients, in fact, the most rapidly rising group of patients are actually the elderly. And they're smoking pot because it helps them sleep better and it sort of relieves these sort of minor aches and pains that basically come with being slightly older. And, you know, when grandma's smoking pot, it is much more acceptable, right, for people sort of more broadly to say, okay, well, maybe this is something we should accept. And I I think that's what we're going to see in other countries going forward. Already in Germany, there's quite a large number of medical users. France is doing a big experiment at the moment on medical use. I think it's going to take a few more years in Britain, but some people are now predicting that it's going to take about five years before uh, full legalisation happens. And it also changes perceptions in another way, doesn't it? Which is that it's much harder to justify the argument that this is a dangerous drug that should be kept away from people when, in fact, you're allowing it to be used to make people feel better. Well, absolutely. And I think one of the reasons why attitudes are changing so quickly to cannabis is essentially our attitudes and our regulations have really been founded on really nothing more than lies. And I don't say that lightly in the sense that the world's been told that cannabis is a really dangerous drug. I'm not here to say that it's without risks. It does have risks. But considering the hundreds of millions of people that use it every year, the harms are relatively low. So it's not a harmful drug. It's certainly not as dangerous as the opioid drugs, which is a category which it has been lumped in with for years. Where we are at the moment is We've got lots of people and politicians and countries really changing their attitudes towards cannabis. And country by country is now going further than saying, OK, we'll allow medical cannabis, for which there are loopholes in international law. And they're saying, actually, we're going to basically legalise recreational use completely. 
And this creates a really difficult situation in international law. In a sense, you you are starting to have a cohort of countries which are essentially law-breaking. You've had Uruguay for a long time. You've got Canada now. And in the next year or so, we could see Mexico, Luxembourg, and New Zealand legalize recreational use. And they have signed the single convention on drugs in 1961 and a number of other treaties, which essentially regulate the trade and use of cannabis. And they are in breach of these laws by legalising recreational use. So how does that contradiction get resolved then? Well, this is the huge question because... There are a number of countries like China and Russia in particular that are implacably opposed to any adjustment of the international drug control treaties. So that leaves three options. One option for a country that is in breach of the law is that it can just leave the single convention. Now, that's not seen as very helpful because... It regulates a whole bunch of other drugs, like the opioids, for example, which you wouldn't necessarily want to come out of the convention just for cannabis. So that's not really very helpful. The second option is to do what Bolivia did when it wanted to allow its citizens to chew cocoa leaf. And that is it exited the single convention and then it re-entered with what's called a reservation. It sort of said, we will adhere to this drug treaty except in the case of chewing cocoa leaves. And that, that was fine. It's not a good solution for all these countries that are breaking the law. It just sort of fragments the sort of international consensus. So what people are suggesting now, or at least a few policy wonks are, that basically that like-minded countries need to come together to form a new treaty. It's called an inter-se treaty. It means among themselves. And essentially, this is allowed under international law. And they could create a new treaty that would allow further the trade, the sale, the legal use of cannabis. And that would fit in with international law. OK, well, this is a fascinating area to watch. And it's obviously a, a story that's playing out over many years. So it's something to keep an eye on. Natasha Loder, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. And finally, many people are worried that robots are going to take all our jobs. But might the real danger be a future in which there are too few robots, not too many? To discuss such a scenario, I'm joined by John Parker, who wrote about this for The World If, our special scenarios edition back in July. So, John, let's start with this question. Most people are worried about too many robots, aren't they? So exactly what are they worried about? Yes. Last year, the very senior person in the Bank of England talked about technological unemployment. It's a a hoary, very old perennial of economists. John Maynard Keynes worried about technological unemployment, basically robots taking our jobs. McKinsey, the large consultancy, estimated that something like 800 million jobs in many, many countries would see lost jobs by 2030, I think it was. So the fear is that especially older workers, people who are unskilled in sort of metal bashing, production line jobs, would find that their jobs would be replaced by fancy robots. So it's, oh my God, the robots are coming and we're going to have mass unemployment and we're going to have a sort of sci-fi dystopia as a result. Yes, absolutely. There'd be so much unemployment um, because the robots would take all our jobs that there would be sort of social disruption and then you'd have to have like huge police forces to come in and keep social order. 
Okay, so this is the scenario that people have been worrying about for a few years now with respect to robots and AI. If it was actually happening, then how would that manifest itself? Well, I think you would see high and rising unemployment in rich countries and probably increased productivity. You know, the workers would be very productive and so productivity and uh, gross domestic product and national income would be rising. So we expect to see higher levels of economic output per worker just because you've got robots doing so much work. Yes. So what do we actually see? Instead of which, (laughs) we see extremely low levels of unemployment, the lowest for decades, and really very low or no productivity growth at all. And therefore, national income is rather sort of flat. What your scenario rather tantalisingly suggests is that we've been worrying about the wrong dystopia. Instead of the dystopia where there are too many robots and they take all the jobs, what's the dystopia that we should be worrying about? Well, I think there might be a sort of technology trap. Everyone's so worried about robots taking all our jobs that we don't invest in automation. And as a result, like 10 years down the line, we have rather low productivity. And worse than that, basically because of demographic change, we also have relatively few workers as well. So we don't have any robots to run our factories. We don't have any workers to run our factories. And so the whole economy operates at a much lower level of productivity than you'd want it to. Now, would that matter? I mean, you'd have what people retiring from the workforce and the workforce shrinking. So how would that actually manifest itself? Isn't this a sort of lump of labor that we're sort of assuming that there's a certain amount of work that needs to be done? So if the population shrinks and GDP falls in line, then that doesn't really matter. Individuals are still as rich as they were. But there are two problems with that. One is that the economy may shrink more than population, in which case each individual is going to be poorer. The other is a sort of opportunity cost. If you could keep the economy at the same size and population falls, then everyone would be richer individually. And we do see some countries that are already experiencing ageing populations and shrinking workforces investing very heavily in automation, don't we? That's absolutely right. In Japan and South Korea, who sort of saw the demographic writing on the wall earlier than most other people, Japan is the country which is ageing fastest in the world, they invested a lot in both sort of an old generation of robots. These are, you know, you're imagining sort of factory line making cars and also robots with AI. They've invested a great deal. And even though their population is beginning to fall, their economies are reasonably healthy, certainly haven't fallen as alongside the population. Now, in your piece, you make a contrast between those economies, which have seen this coming, and Britain, which is a laggard in investing in robots. I mean, it's shockingly far down the field, isn't it? So what are the consequences of that potentially? If we get to the 2030s and our workforce is shrinking in Britain and we haven't invested in robots, how might that manifest itself? And what would the problem actually be? Britain's population isn't shrinking as much as other people's. Its demographic writing, as it were, is on the wall, but it's smaller. So I think that's probably sort of enabled us or helped us not invest in technology. It's a cause of it. But 
in future, and Britain is going to face exactly the same problems of demographic decline as every other country, and it's going to face really significant problems in certain sectors. Healthcare's one, something like a third of doctors are within five years of retirement at the moment, and new people aren't coming through to anything like that extent. So we're going to face very severe problems in the National Health Service. There just won't be enough doctors and nurses. Well, people listening to this may say, well, surely the answer is simple, just allow large-scale migration and have people move from other countries to do these jobs. And assuming that's sort of politically acceptable, which it may not be, but if it were, would that solve the problem? Um, No, I think it would help a little bit, but uh, you'd need really enormous migration to come into a country to replace the sort of numbers that we're talking about. And also migrants tend to then behave like people in the country where they move to and have fewer children. Absolutely right. So very quickly, the migrants would have exactly the same sort of attitudes and long-term sort of problems of the native population. It's not too many robots taking all the jobs. It's too few robots to do the jobs. Do you think we might actually find ourselves praying for the rise of the robots to, to, come, and, <laughs> to come and work in our factories and so on in the 2030s rather than praying that they go away? Yeah, I mean, look, there's a balance here, right? What I think is that countries that don't invest in new technology and automation are going to look at countries that have done that and think, oh, we should have done that 20 years ago, but it'll be 20 years too late. Well, assuming we haven't both been replaced by robots by then, (laughs) we'll have to come back and check. John Parker, thanks very much. There's always hope. (laughs) Thank you. That's all for this edition of The World Ahead. If you enjoy our journalism, why not consider taking out a subscription to The Economist? Just go to economist.com slash radio offer to get 12 issues for $12 or £12. I'm Tom Standage. In London, this is The Economist.